We're actually starting a new series this week, and our series will be focused on walking in confidence. Of course, as we walk through the search for a lead pastor and all the transition that go on inside of a church because of that, we just thought it'd be a great opportunity to focus on who Christ is and who the church is, and we'll be talking about that over the next several weeks. One of the things that we begin talking about is how we as followers of Christ and the church walk in the confidence of who he is and what he has done. I'll be preaching next week also, and then Ryan will be preaching. And then the last Sunday of September, we'll be focusing on prayer and prayer in confidence. We'll have a guest speaker, John Franklin, who has done a ton in prayer and spiritual awakening, and he will teach us through that on Sunday morning, and then a special prayer conference seminar on Sunday evening, the last Sunday evening of September. But the focus is how do we walk in confidence by holding on to Christ, right? How do we do that? The Bible is full of illustrations for that. Uh, For example, Abraham in the Old Testament, when he stepped out, when God called him out of where he was into a new land, right, to to start a new people that were going to follow after God. Abraham walking in confidence, being able to step out to where God was leading. Led him all through so many things to to the birth of his son Isaac, who was going to become the new nation even to the place where God told him to go sacrifice Isaac on the mountain, and he walked to Mount Moriah, and there in that moment, when he thought he was going to kill his son, God provided a sacrifice instead. God always provides a sacrifice. God always does that. He, he did that for us through Christ, right? He is our ultimate sacrifice. It's through Jesus that he, we have new life because he sacrificed his life for us on the cross and raised from the dead that we might have life. That's why we can walk in confidence. Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 24. So if you have your Bible with you, or iPhone, iPad, whatever you're using, the Bible in the pew in front of you, Matthew chapter 14. I might have said 24. Matthew chapter 14. In Matthew chapter 14, we have this story where Matthew tells us, it's also the story you find in a couple other of the Gospels. John chapter 6, for example, is also just a, a bit of this story. But here in Matthew chapter 14, Matthew kind of fleshes it out even more for us because it really helps us to understand who Jesus is and as we're walking in confidence, how we might trust in him. In this chapter, chapter 14, it starts out with a couple of other things, but the the story right before this narrative really is about uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And while he really fed more than that, the Bible says there are 5,000 men. There were also the women and the children and the whole group. But he had had been feeding. He gave them food. He took some some fish and some bread, and he blessed it, and they passed it out to them. And he fed, I don't know, 10, 12, 15,000 people. You have all those numbers. But the Bible says he he fed at least 5,000 men and those who were with them. Now, that's an important passage because in that passage, we began to see that the people would raise up. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for leadership. There was, a, there was something in that. And so Jesus has performed this miracle. He has, he has fed 5,000 people, which was a, in the Old Testament, the understanding when Jesus, when the Messiah would come, he would be the one who is able to feed the masses. And so the people began to say, this is the guy. He is the Messiah. He's been doing all these miracles. He's been doing all these, all these healings. And now he's fed the masses. So the people were saying, this is the guy. He is, he is the one. 
And the disciples were kind of the same way. You know, they were looking for this political leader, right? They were looking for a guy that were going to storm the gates of Rome. That's what they wanted to do. The Bible tells us that through the power of Christ, we're going to storm the gates of hell. But through the middle of that, they were looking for a leader that would storm the gates of Rome. And Jesus knew that they were doing that. He knew that they were talking about that. They knew that he knew that they were rising up. He knew that all these things were going on, but Jesus does something so incredible. He stops it all. He just says, enough. It's not what's happening. So in this narrative that we're going to look at, 14, 22 through 33, Jesus says to his disciples, actually the word we'll talk about in a moment, was make them. He made them get in a boat and he sends them off. Why did he do that? Well, there's reasons that he did that, but one of those reasons were that they really, they really were hoping he would be that, that king, and he had, to, he had to dismiss them to get them to go. They, were, they wanted to be fired up that this is a guy, and he said, no, you have to leave. So he sends them off in the boat to go across to the other side of the sea. Now, that's not that far away. It's the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's just not that far away. Jesus, after he sends them off, dismisses the crowd, and then he goes up to the mountain to a place to pray. So Jesus now has been praying for most of the night. We find that from John chapter 6. It was now in the early morning hours. Now get the timeline. They probably finished dinner, right? Late in the evening, it's getting dark. Jesus dismisses everybody, sends the guys out on the boat. It's getting dark. Now it's early in the morning, many hours later, Jesus had been praying for many hours, the disciples out here on the boat, and the Bible tells us that there's a storm that has come up. And these guys are now on the boat, and they are rowing against the wind. They've been taking, doing that for a long time. Their cells aren't working, and they're just, they're just trying to get across the water. Now, sometimes we felt the same way, right? Man, the storms of life, the things that go on around us, we're, like, we're, we're just paddling upstream as hard as we can go. We're paddling against the wind. We thought things were going great. We thought things were just moving. We thought things were amazing. That's like the apostles were, Jesus, you're the guy. And all of a sudden, a few hours later, they find themselves in the middle of the lake rowing hard against the wind. We've all felt that way. When things looked like it was just going perfect, it didn't go so perfectly. We found ourselves in a major storm. And that's where these guys are. Now, here they are in the storm. And they're out there, and they're battling against it. And Jesus comes walking on the water to them. And as he's walking on the water toward them, the first response is, what is that thing? That must be a ghost. Matter of fact, the word that he uses here is just that idea of a phantom. They didn't know what it was. And so here they look and they see, and they don't know what it is. Jesus speaks to them and he says, take courage, it's I, be not afraid. We'll come back to that verse in a little bit. And Peter, being who he is, says, okay, if that's really you, Jesus, let me get out of the boat and come to you. Jesus said, okay, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat, walks on the water, realizes what's going on around him and begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out his hand, touches them. They get in the boat, the, st the storm stops, and they worship Jesus. Now, that's the narrative of that story, but there was so much inside that that we need to learn from today that's going to help us. So let's dive in a little closer to that and see what the passage teaches us. The first thing we need to do is realize that Jesus knows where you are. And immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, it's very important to understand here that Jesus made the disciples do this. They didn't want to do it. Sometimes we think things happen 
And man, we try to discern God's will. What is God's will in this? How did God let this happen? All these things that are going on, and we look for God's will inside storms of life. Well, see, in this passage, being in the storm was God's will for these guys. Being where we are today as a church or where you might be is God's will, and God uses that in three ways. God uses the storms in our lives, one, to correct us. So one of the things that he does, sometimes we get off the path, right? Sometimes as followers of Christ, we fall into sin. Sometimes we decide we're going to do what we want to do versus what God wants to do, and God has to use storms in our life to correct our path. Now, the second thing that God uses his will for in our lives and the storms that we go through is not just to correct us, but direct us, to give us some direction when we are floundering, when we don't know what to do, when we don't know where we're going. God oftentimes might put us into a storm so that we understand a clear direction that he is sending us. And then the third thing that God does in the middle of these storms Not only does he correct us and direct us, but he is about perfecting us. That's what the Bible teaches, that he is about making us into his likeness. So those things that we're going through in life, they have, and sometimes we say, man, is this the will of God? Is this the will of God? Well, it is the will of God. It's the will of God either to correct us or the will of God to direct us or to perfect us, to make him more like himself. That's what he wants. He is the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith. Now we hate that sometimes because it's hard. It's difficult. We're rowing against the storm. It's not easy. Nowhere does it say it's going to be easy. Nowhere does it give us that indication that's where we are. But we realize in the middle of that that Jesus knows where we are. It's not a surprise to him where you are in your life and what you're going through. The second thing I want us to see this morning is that we need to recognize that Jesus then comes into all aspects of our life. If he knows where we are, then this passage teaches us that he comes into all aspects of our life. Let's look together at verse 25. It says that Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. Or uh, the NIV, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, in that passage, it tells us some things about Jesus coming into our life. Now, now get this in this verse. If you circle anything in this verse or in this whole passage, circle that word Jesus, because that's the key. Sometimes we hear messages on this passage, and we think, well, this is about Peter walking on the water, right? We, he has faith. Well, that's a part of it. But this passage of Scripture is not about Peter. It's not about Peter walking on the water and Peter's weak faith. That's a part of it. But this passage is all about Jesus, It's about the very fact that he is coming to us in our times of need. It's about the fact that he is the one who is doing the work here. That's the circle word that you want to circle in that passage. It is about Jesus. So it says that in in this early morning time, in these wee hours of the morning, now one of the things that we might relate that to is the darkest time of the day. 
If you were around last night, you know how dark it was. The storms are raging outside our door and probably at your house too. And it's very dark outside. Can you imagine? There are now no stars in the sky. They're out here on the lake. This is the darkest part of the day. They've been out here for, I don't know, seven, eight hours rowing against the wind. And one of the things that we have to realize in the darkest part of our lives, Jesus is coming into it. He is stepping into our lives when it's the darkest time. Now, it also goes on to say that right before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Listen, you, you might think that you're far from God, and you might think that you've done stuff that you can never come back to God. This passage teaches us that there is no where, no place that you can go that God's love is not going to find you. It's not possible. You can't go far enough away. There is no distance that you can get from a God who has amazing love and who is the one who is making, making the effort. He's the one who is doing the work. Sometimes we think we have to do all the work. We think we have to do everything. But here it tells us, no, in the darkest times, here comes Jesus. He's coming out to us. And how is he coming? He's coming by walking on the lake. I mean, the waves are still going. The wind is still blowing. All the thing is still happening. But Jesus is coming to us in the most difficult circumstances, in the most difficult, just like there is no way there's, there's a distance that separates us. There is nothing too difficult. There is nothing too difficult than Jesus can come into your life. If you're not a follower of Christ, there is nothing that can keep him from coming into you. For us who are followers that, that might be away from him, off the path, there is nothing more difficult that we're doing that won't allow him to love us and put his arms around us. So we must recognize that Jesus is coming to all aspects of our lives. The third thing I want us to look at today is to realize that he has a plan to make us stronger in our faith. He has a plan to make you stronger in your faith. And we see it in this passage. In the Old Testament, for example, we might see one who's walking in confidence. You might call up the name of David and all the things that David was about. We find David early on in his life being able to walk in confidence out in front of, of the giant Goliath who was making fun of the children of God. And David said, you just can't do that. And I'm here to stop you. The Goliath laughed at him. But in walking in confidence, David walked across the creek, picked up some stones, went out, faced Goliath and killed him. Not out of his strength but out of the confidence that he had in the power of God who was in his life. That's what makes the difference. How the power of God is in our life. So where there's the darkest hour, the greatest distance, or the most difficult time, Jesus is coming to us. Let's look at verse 26. The disciples walk, saw him walking on the water. They were terrified by what they saw. It's a ghost, they said. They cried out in fear. It's a ghost. Are you kidding me? It's a phantom. They all saw it at the same time. They don't even know what it is. Now, a real important question is, why didn't they recognize him, right? Why didn't they recognize Jesus? I mean, they'd been with him. They'd been around him. They'd lived with him for the last two plus years. Why didn't they recognize who he was? Well, interestingly enough, we won't see Jesus if we're not looking for him. We've got to be looking for him. We've got to see his presence. We've got to see where he is. 
We gotta see what he's doing. And sometimes we get so caught up in our storms and we get so caught up in the things that are happening around them. And I understand that. It is difficult. Life is hard sometimes. And we get so caught up in those things that we miss the fact that we, we don't see him because we simply aren't looking for him. It says here that in that, they were, they were so afraid. They were so afraid of, of not the storms anymore. They were afraid of what they saw. What? That makes no sense, does it? I mean, it's Jesus. It's the guy they've been with. It's the one who a few hours ago, they were going to say, man, you are king. Let's storm Rome with you. But now they don't even recognize who he is. Sometimes, oh, sometimes we can get so far away from him that we don't recognize him. Sometimes we look at every other possible solution until we don't recognize that the solution is Jesus. And sometimes it sounds too easy, right? Oh, it's just Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer. It's just Jesus. But that's, that's it. That's what it is. It's building our faith in him. Well, the second thing I want us to see in this passage is not just that you will see him if you're not looking for him, but you also will not hear him if you're not listening for him. Listening is important. You can ask Elizabeth, I am not the best listener in our family, not even close. I'm always thinking about what I'm going to say next, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to, what I'm going to talk about, so I'm not a good listener. I have to set aside time to listen to what God is saying. And sometimes I don't like what God is saying. Sometimes I don't like the things that he, that, he, that he has even in his word as I read it because it challenges me to, to grow, to be more like him. Yet in this passage, they were not listening to him because Jesus says, take courage, be of courage. It is I, do not be afraid. How many times have we heard that? How many times have you heard, read, said, have listened to a sermon where you know that you need to take courage? Yet in the midst of storm, that's the thing that we do first, right? And foremost is become fearful. This word here takes me to the Old Testament idea of Joshua, who was also walking in confidence as he brought the children of Israel around the, the city of Jericho. He was walking in confidence. Why? Because God had said to him, man, be strong, be of good courage, that's what he wants of us, to be of good courage. Why then would I be of good courage? Well, if I'm listening to what he says, he says, first of all, take courage. And that courage is not on your own. The courage is not yours. He says, take courage because it is I. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the Old Testament, Moses, who's also walking in the life of confidence, walked before a burning bush. And he said, who are you? And God said, I am. And that's what Jesus says right here. He says, I am, I, I, it is I, I'm the creator of all things. I, I sustain the whole world. I'm the giver of all things. I'm the maker of everything that is. It is I, it's, it's Jesus, it's, it's I am. So if you're gonna have courage, if I'm gonna have courage, I've gotta move myself to the place where I recognize and I'm hearing that he is who he says he is. And if I believe who he says he is, if I believe that, and I'm hearing that and I'm seeing that, surely I don't have to be fearful inside that. Surely I can trust him. I can look at what he's done. I can look at his previous actions. I can see his, his great faithfulness, right? And I can say, therefore, I can have courage, not because I even know how it's gonna answer. I don't know how I'm gonna walk through it, but I know because he said, I am. And I find myself then being able to hear what he is saying and what does he say? Well, Peter says, hey, can I come to you? And, and he says, come on, 
That's what he says. So the third thing I want us to see is to understand that you will not call on him if you don't think you need him. If you think you can get through it on your own, you won't call on Jesus. If you think you can answer all your own questions, you won't call on Jesus. If you think you can get to heaven without him, you won't call on Jesus. And we have a lot of people in church, out of church, who try to do everything else. They talk, talk about their Christianity until they get into trouble, and then they don't call on Jesus. So you have to say, what is that? How does that work? How, how can you not call on Jesus when you're in the middle of the storm, and he has said to you, bring your burdens to me. Everyone who has just heavy burdens, bring them to me and rest on me. But we don't do that. Well, the fourth thing is that you don't trust him if you don't have faith in him. And that's where we get to. Oftentimes, it's moving us from seeing to hearing to responding, and our response is out of faith. So we might fear in our own lives for something going on, and we might fear that we can't handle it, and so it takes us a long time to get to the place where we think God can handle it. It's the same way with us as a church. We think, God, how, how did you not know that we weren't going to have a pastor? Things were going so well, da 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 And then we get to that place, wait a minute. God, it's not our church, it's your church. You're in charge of this, so let us call upon you. Let us look forward to what you're going to do. Let us hear what you're saying. Let us see what you're doing. Let us call upon the name of Christ to do a, a new and fresh work. Because in our community, no matter who's pastor here, we have people around us who are dying and going to hell. And God has placed us here in order to make the impact because we're able to say our faith and our trust is in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's where we have to be, amen? Amen. So as a body of believers, as a people of God, we come to this place and we see what we're doing here. We're looking and seeing. But last thing, when we recognize the truth, it requires us to respond. In the last part of this chapter, or not last part of this narrative, verse 32, when they got into the boat, Peter and Jesus, the wind ceased, those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. Now they had been with Jesus for a good number of years, months, but this is the first time in recorded biblical study that the apostles proclaimed that Jesus is the son of God. He was Jesus, he was Messiah, he was Christ, but they had never proclaimed him together as a group, that he is the son of God. Because you know what that means? It means that his ways are higher than their ways. His knowledge is greater than their ways. His ability is greater than anything they thought and imagined. They thought they were storming the gates of Rome, but no, God had something completely different. And now he says, and they say to him, you are the son of God. And what do they do? They worship. What does worship mean? It's not singing songs. That's a part of worship. It's not prayer. That's a part of worship, but they didn't do any of that on the boat. What were they doing when it says here they worshiped him? You know what they were doing? They were getting on their face and bowing before him because now he is the son of God. And worship, worship is not about style. It's not about time. It's about when we bring our hearts and our lives to surrender ourselves before him and acknowledge that he and he alone is God. I don't know what you're going through personally, but I hope you will acknowledge who he is in your life and call upon him. 
I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ. Maybe you're far from Christ. Maybe you've been on that journey and you're coming back to Christ. But acknowledge who he is. He is God. And for all of us, to be able to say, we surrender our hearts, Lord. We worship you and we surrender to you today because you are our champion You are championing the things for us. You are the one that we come to. You are the one that we look to. We are listening, God. We are looking for your presence. We we want to call upon you. Why? Because we want our faith to go deep. Lord, we want to be in your will. Correct us, direct us, perfect us, make us like yourself. But Lord, we surrender our hearts because you are God. You are our champion.